Welcome to the Blockchain VC, a podcast about crypto and the digital assets ecosystem. My name is Tomer Federman, and I'm the managing partner at Federman Capital. We invest in the most promising blockchain startups across the globe. I have more than 15 years of experience in tech, and before starting the fund, I was on the product side at Facebook, where I led product strategy and global growth of some of Facebook's major ad products. Previously, I also lived in Silicon Valley for a few years, where I attended Stanford Business School. You can find me on Twitter at Tomer Federman. Before we begin, please note that this podcast is for informational purposes only. And all the opinions expressed on this show, either by guests or me, do not reflect the opinions of Federman Capital. Nothing on the Blockchain VC podcast represents an investment or financial advice. Please, do your own research. Also, if you like this episode of the Blockchain VC and want to help bring more awareness to the space, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps get the word out. Okay, let's do this. My guest today is Kathleen Breitman, co-founder of Tezos. Kathleen, really excited to welcome you to the show today. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, of course. So to get started before we deep dive on Tezos, would love to learn more about your background. Sure. Um, yeah, so I mean, um, I graduated from college in 2012. Um, I was a philosophy major, but unfortunately, all the philosophy um, factories were closed when I graduated. Um, so I went <laughs> to work in, in New York. Um, I was working out of a, a venture capital fund at a startup that was um, <laughs> in duress Uh, with a guy who was uh, a more seasoned consultant and was trying to help that uh, company turn around. Um, I did that for like the better part of a year. Uh, I was I was kind of tired of being in a very depressing environment. <laughs> um, and so I went to work at a, a hedge fund uh, called Bridgewater, which has, you know, I, I guess its culture is more popular now because um, it's yeah, CEO. And, that's a pretty big one. Yeah, it's well, it's the largest, right? Um, and uh, it's a cool place to work. It's like, a, well, it's a very, uh, it's a very exotic environment. And there's a lot of really smart people there. So that was fun. Um, but it definitely wasn't my calling. And so um, I was sort of left out in the wilderness for, uh, you know, what felt like a, a little while. Um, and I, I, you know, kind of figured that consulting would be a good way for me to see a, a lot of different Uh, a lot of different positions, a lot of different industries in a short period of time. Mm -hmm. um, so I joined Accenture in, oh, geez, I guess like 2014. Um, around that time, or in parallel with that time, um, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in general um, became more popular. Uh, so when was that? Like 2013, 2014. Okay, got it. And uh, that's like when Bitcoin hit $1,000 uh, per Bitcoin the first time. And, and that was that got a lot of press, right? And a lot of excitement. And my um, my dear, sweet husband, who I, I married around that time, um, wouldn't shut up about Bitcoin <laughs> um, or, or Ethereum. Or any, Rightfully so. Yeah. yeah <laughs> or any of the projects. Sounds like a smart guy. Oh, yes. Yes. Well, you know, he, he's, um, he's, he's truly a polymath. And uh, what's what's fun about Arthur is that he um, gets super excited about ideas and he just like goes down a rabbit hole um, and you, 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 you know, you can choose to go down there with him and he'll he'll graciously take you there. Um, uh, I remember like during college, he was really into like tensegrity and like tension bridges like that was his thing for for a few months. And he would just come up with new facts that I didn't know because that wasn't something I was terribly interested in. And uh, he would just, you know, tell me about it for hours on end. What made him focus on Bitcoin and Ethereum? Um, well, you know, he's always been super interested in money. He, he had a career um, in finance for you know, the better part of a decade. Um, I think that cryptocurrencies um, definitely force you to think or rethink about what you think money is um, and how to You know, transmit value more broadly and so that really tickled something that he would he was interested in from like a purely intellectual perspective but also he had a quite a bit of professional insight um, into how some of the assumptions um, were playing out in the Bitcoin you know white paper for example which is meant to be a little antagonistic to banks um, and uh, and you know obviously you can have Arthur in the show and he can opine on his um, his views. <laughs> right. um, I, you know don't take him take my word he's he's quite capable of articulating himself um but uh definitely his his obsession with cryptocurrencies um you know sort of forced me to have a um 
if you can't beat him, join him moment. Uh, and, and so um, I got progressively more interested in the space. I admittedly was a lot more skeptical um, than he was. And, uh, and I think that actually like spurred a, a fair amount of good discussions and good thinking um, over, over what value it had, um, if any at all, right? Um, it's, it, it looks like a bit of a long shot of, of the technology. Anyway, um, Arthur, you know, was, was really opining a lot about the cryptocurrency stuff. And around some point in 2015, when I was working at Accenture, um, my worlds collided because I came across an internal memo on Bitcoin that was just like comically bad. It was like really, it, it didn't get anything right. And uh, really? yeah, it was, it was pretty, it was pretty bad. And, uh, and so I had a moment where I was like, wait a second, like I know about this. <laughs> so <laughs> I, uh, I piped up and I was like, you guys, you know, th- it's not just that this was incorrect. It's that like, you didn't even get things that were in the Bitcoin like white paper, like copy pasted correctly. Um, and so uh, that prompted a lot of more senior people to take a, take notice of what I was um, offering or what I was saying about the technology. Um, I got more interested in, in kind of getting through the the technical um, implementation of it, and uh, and I, I wound up finding finding a little niche for myself at Accenture um, with the uh, with the crypto stuff, um, which was which was nice. It, it, I made some really good friends. In the firm. Walking on Bitcoin 2015 at Accenture. Well, that must have been quite an experience. It just wasn't that interesting, right? Like, you know, it, it, like when you're a consultant, you're not necessarily incented to like be on the cutting edge of something. Um, the the consultancies usually make their money on implementing more tried and true mechanisms, not necessarily being on the vanguard of cutting edge technology. Um, and especially with a firm like Accenture, which is publicly traded, um, you know, there really isn't a very strong appetite for um, carving out a new practice area. Um, and this is a frustration that not you know, just me, but other people at the firm had shared and, you know, subsequently have left, cons- you know, as a consequence of this. Um, and, you know, that's, that that stinks, right? Um, but uh, for mm-hmm. someone who's like 25 or 26, um, I guess I was 25, um, I, I, you know, I started to look around for greener pastures. Um, you know, I, I wound up um, interviewing it actually mostly not like blockchain firms, uh, mostly, mostly, uh, I was just looking through my emails the other day, I was mostly looking at um, like positions in data management and things like that, that's small startups. But basically, I wanted something that was a little bit more um, oriented towards growth. Um, and I felt as though I had received like a pretty decent education at Accenture that I could go out and, and uh, you know, be a, a good operator at another business. Um, and, right. Well, which office, by the way, of Accenture were you based at? New York. Um, I was living, ah, New York. Yeah, I lived in New York for most of this. And, uh, and you know, at some point, um, R3 uh, reached out or Tim Swanson reached out to me and, you know, wanted me to interview at R3. And uh, that was pretty cut and dry and, and where I could probably gain the most um, leverage on, on my expertise that I had cultivated until then. Um, so I worked at R3 for a brief period mm-hmm. of time. Um, and uh, this was um, when they were kind of uh, transitioning from having um, coordinated consortium to thinking through what their product strategy would be with Corda, which is a open source project that they've been working on with the different banks um, that are involved with them. Um, around this time, uh, uh, basically, the idea of Tezos or the ideas that are promoted in the uh, Tezos um, or presented in the Tezos position paper um, came to the fore because um, the DAO hack took place. Um, and I, I, you know, I assume that if someone's listening to the the Blockchain VC podcast, they're familiar with the events that <laughs> inspired that. Hopefully, yeah. Um, but basically, the idea of having a formal mechanism to um, resolve disputes, uh, you know, was was super attractive um, at that point. And um, having a formal mechanism to instantiate upgrades isn't a far cry from that. Um, the idea is, uh, mm-hmm. you know, presenting a legitimate upgrade, and that's what Tezos, you know, effectively does. Um, you know, Tezos can be many things, but at its core, um, Tezos is a piece of software that um, allows for the instantiation of upgrades to the protocol um, using the you know consensus of token holders. And um, mm-hmm. it's a pretty simple idea. <laughs> um, so we'll get to Tezos in a second. You're working at the R3 or Corda, and then like the DAO hack happens, and then you realize 
wow, I can develop a solution to, to address some of these pain points? Or oh, well, you know, how did you think about starting Tezos? Well, the, you know, the Tezos position paper was published in 2014, and uh, the white paper was published soon after. Um, and so there had been a group of people already working on, uh, you know, an implementation of, of Tezos. Uh, so it wasn't something that like came up in 2016. It was something that, you know, I, I think people caught on to uh, you know, how, how transformative it could be in 2016 because of this event that basically um, fell in line with some of the, the theses uh, that are expanded upon in the position paper and the, and the, the mm-hmm. less accessible white paper. So um, the the notion of Tezos became more popular in 2016, but it had already been, you know, had about two years of, of work um, you know, towards it. Um, but, you know, for a while, I think the team wasn't sure exactly, um, you know, when or if uh, Tezos would be released or in what manner um, the code base would be um you know, presented or exposed, um, but it became obvious, I think, in 2016 that um, the ideas that are presented in 2014 um, had teeth. And as these networks grow, uh, there's only going to be more disputes and more politics amongst the people who have, um, have, have tokens in these networks. And without a proper way to adjudicate um, uh, I, I guess, different preferences and different matters of taste in a, legit, a legitimizing way, um, it is quite hard to fathom um, these networks expanding in a decentralized fashion, and so um, you know that was kind of that was kind of the insight that I think led to a renewed popularity in the ideas for Tezos, um, which was great timing for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because you know, 2014, I don't think I was like quite ready uh, to, to to really you know, jump in and uh, and. By 2016, I think I knew enough about this myself and the way I operated that I, uh, um, I, I felt very comfortable, um, you know, quitting my job and and going, um, you know, going into this full time. Um, and you know, my my responsibilities were mostly like to oversee um, any sort of uh, d- development that needed to take place and uh, and, and sort of grow and and uh, you know th- think through um, what the project could be over the next few years. Mm-hmm. So sounds like you had a strong conviction about the concept behind Tezos, and you at that point you felt strongly enough, even though in, at any point this is a bold move to quit your job and yeah, pursue I, something new. But, yeah, I mean, I I think if you look at like um, my uh, profile as like a person, like I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty risk averse. Um, <laughs> says the entrepreneur. Well, I'm an entrepreneur now, right? But like. You know, I, I think uh, there's a really great Paul Graham essay that says, like, don't send your kids to like an Ivy League school because the, the worst tax that you get is like a complete aversion to risk. And, uh, and you know, basically, any time I did something like vaguely adventurous, I would retreat back to the thing that was, uh, you know, more, more, uh, you know, more closed off and a little bit more um less risky. Um, so this was a pretty big jump for me. Um, but you know, Arthur, Arthur was, um, extraordinarily supportive of me, uh, going on full time. And, um, you know, if I didn't feel as though I had his encouragement and faith, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have done it. Um, Mm -hmm. it was a pretty big and delightful part of the story there. Um, but yeah, you know, I I quit my job and, uh, I sort of didn't know what to do next. (laughs) Um, but there's a lot of stuff that had to be done because uh, Tezos had, had largely just been, uh, you know, a, a, a small, uh, you know, team of team of people, um, and we, you know, we needed to kind of pull in other other talents um, to to um, I think understand what what you know this project could be, uh, you know, and and then fast forward a year and a half later, and and the Tezos network launches um, to a lot of. Um, excitement and fair and fair from you know hundreds hundreds of um, t- t- actually tens of thousands of people um, in over you know eighty countries in the world. So what is Tezos, Catherine? For listeners who might not be familiar with it, yeah, so Tezos is a piece of open source software. Um, it is a uh, blockchain with uh, smart contracts, um, and its main differentiation from other um, smart contract platforms is that it has a formal mechanism for instantiating upgrades to the protocol in a decentralized fashion, meaning there isn't just like one person or one entity who signs off on um, upgrades to the protocol. It's it's done through uh, sort of the consensus of people who um, have tokens. 
So how does that work? Because I know you have a pretty innovative model in terms of governance. Can you describe that a bit more? Let's say you want to upgrade the protocol. What happens next? How does that happen? Yeah, so I mean, uh, it's kind of funny because the actual governance mechanism for Tezos can change itself. Um, it's It gets very meta very quickly. Um, but in the first in the first you know so, sort of version of the governance model um you, you know basically people who validate the ledger um you know with traditionally the role of miners in bitcoin um you know tezos has as token holders who are able to um assume that role because it's a proof of stake based network um and those same people um basically vote on upgrades to the protocol in a in a um i, I guess uh, tiered fashion, um, you know, at first they, they signal their desire to, um, uh, basically test out something. And then based on the results of a, a trial period, um, they allow for, uh, you know, the upgrade to be legitimized and to basically be, um, uh, pushed out to the rest of the network. I see. And assuming the more, tokens I have, the more votes I have? Yeah. So, there, you know, there's no, there's no uh, necessarily no concept of one person, one vote. It's, uh, you know, weighted by um, the, the token ownership of the, of the entity. The token ownership of the entity. Okay. So isn't that like one token, one vote? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So basically, okay. The more tokens I hold, the more sway I have in pushing decisions based on my own viewpoint. Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah, got it. And other than that, any other major distinctions between Tezos and other smart contract platforms like Ethereum, EOS, Definity, Cardano, and so forth? I mean, so far, that's a, a pretty big point of differentiation, right? Like, <laughs> um, you know, I, I think uh, there's a fundamental like difference in philosophy between Ethereum and Tezos. Ethereum has like sort of a 2.0 phase that they're going to go through over the next um, few months. And, you know, that that basically has to boil the ocean. Tezos can um, provide for incremental progress because there is a, you know, set governance mechanism that has, um, you know, timelines associated with it and, and can, you know, uh, basically imbue gradual progress as opposed to boiling the ocean, as we'd say in consulting. Okay. And I know also you have a slightly different consensus algorithm, right? If you can talk about that for a second, about liquid proof of stake yeah. versus just normal proof of stake and delegated proof of stake. Yeah. So again, pretty big differentiation from, from Ethereum, which doesn't have uh, have, have proof of stake. Um, but, you know, there's basically um, a few different models of proof of stake. Uh, the reason we call it liquid proof of stake in the Tezos community um, is because basically uh, delegation isn't fixed. Uh, you can basically you have rights associated with your ownership of uh, the 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 token um, in the network, um, as I mentioned before, like voting being one of them. Um, and basically, you can assign those rights to someone else um, who can validate the ledger on on your behalf. Um, and so you can you can very easily switch um, from one delegate to another um, if if you think this person is acting unscrupulously or you disagree with their um, governance. Uh, you know, philosophy or participation or lack thereof, um, and basically the ability to move very seamlessly between um, different delegates uh, is a distinguishing feature of, of Tezos as opposed to, um, uh, let's say, something like EOS, where where a delegation is fixed to a certain number of validators, and you're sort of stuck um, a little bit. And there have been quite a bit quite a bit of politics associated with that in the EOS network, right? Um, that there hasn't been in in, in the Tezos network. What I find really fascinating in your model is that basically you can choose, right? On the one hand, you can choose to go, I guess, the representative democracy route and have a delegate vote on your behalf. On the other hand, you can just decide not to do that and you vote directly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, uh, you know, a lot of different people, uh, I guess, basically, when when the Tezos, the Genesis block that was proposed by the foundation in like, uh, you know, June 2018 had... Um, you know, a lot of participation from people who I guess you would describe mostly as like hobbyists or, you know, uh, who are, who are doing these types of services, um, you know, part-time or they weren't ex ex exactly like full-time professionals, um, who, who focused on the software. Um, and I think that's great. Like that was very, there was very organic, very community-based. Um, but over the last, I would say like six to nine months, we've seen more, um, uh, institutions and 
exchanges um, sort of put their hat into the ring and offer um, offer validation services for people who um, own Tezos tokens. Um, and that's been like things like Coinbase, so and so forth, Kraken uh, most recently. And um, and then simultaneously, uh, there have been a bunch of people at like places like Obsidian Systems, which is a, a development shop in New York, um, uh, basically creating software that facilitates, um, you know, baking uh, or validating the ledger, um, you know, more easy for individuals. Uh, and, and that's with things like the, you know, ledger hardware wallet. Um, and that's great. Basically, you're appealing to many different types of people. Some people are less technical, but they still ought to have their voice heard and making it very easy for them to participate, um, whether it's self-baking or whether it's delegation to, um, you know, a professional service that uh, really takes the time and energy to think through um, and participate in the governance model. That's all fantastic because it, it basically... Um, widens uh the input uh into the network and you know i i don't think that people who um are, are purely technical always have the right answers i think that you do need um, a lot of uh, sense checks from different voices in a network to make the best decisions possible um mm -hmm. and so the the more accessible we make baking uh whether it's through um, institutions or sort of this cottage industry that has arisen in the Tezos community or through self-baking, um, you know, that that's just that just strengthens um, the network because it, it um, makes it more inclusive. And just to clarify, when you say baking, that's basically staking, right? People using their tokens to validate. Yeah, exactly. I think I think baking is a really cute image. Um, <laughs> of, <laughs> right. Of creating blocks and uh, and making it, uh, you know, fun. And also, you know, the the the, the team that uh, uh, it's in the oven. Uh. Yeah, it's a lot of Frenchmen <laughs> on the original, you know, original rocket. Uh, so they like their baked goods. Um, and uh, and yeah, I think it's a cute little. I think it's a cute little moniker. Um, it's hard to it's hard to uh, resist saying it sometimes in interviews because it's a little confusing. But yes, it's basically validating the ledger. Right. And is there a concern, Kathleen, about some of these exchanges becoming too dominant on the platform? Meaning, for instance, let's say a lot of people start staking on the Coinbase and the Kraken's of the world. They get a lot of power and say in the future direction of the protocol. Yeah, I think I think that would be a bigger issue if this was a traditional um, uh, a traditional DPoS network like EOS. I think it's less of an issue with Tezos because um, there is that uh, ability to basically um, take away that power. Um, you know, that's something that the community gives to uh, you know people at Coinbase. Um, you know, and, and it, you know, there's an understanding there that that's um, some of the rights they're they're, they're providing to them. Um, and if you you know over time see that the network isn't evolving the way you'd like, um, it's it's quite simple with the uh, with the existing model um, to basically take your rights and assign them to someone else um, if you don't want to self bake. But I think you know the 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 way that the technology is evolving and the community is evolving is that a lot of people want to bake for themselves. Um, and, you know, the, the sort of uh, marginal person might want to delegate to a service, um, but mostly folks are, are coming to find that it's more accessible to, to do a DIY project around this. Um, and I think that's encouraging. I think there's, you know, Coinbase and, and Kraken are, are really popular um, uh, companies in the space. And I think it's good to have um, the people there working on um, creating software and creating best practices around um, validation, and certainly some of the the feedback that they you know give other developers in the community is extraordinarily valuable because they come to uh, this with a different set of skills and a different set of insights into how these networks work. Um, and I think that's valuable and it contributes in its own way. Um, but I think ultimately, you know, this this um, this technology is predicated on the idea of taking power out of, um, of, you know, a select few people. That's almost exclusively what the Tezos position paper talks about is, is basically uh, giving decision-making power back to folks. And, you know, I think the test will be, you know, do people actually want that to want to be a part of that? And in the Tezos community, I think that, that the answer to that is, you know, absolutely yes. Um, there's a really strong cultural push um, towards um, participating in governance and debating the governance mechanisms. And I feel as though the rights given and afforded to Tezos token holders um, has emboldened them uh, to really be enthusiastic about uh, the governance mechanism. And um, 
that's unique to Tezos and it's unique to the, the Tezos culture as, as far as I've observed. Um, so that makes me really excited and it gives me hope that is, you know, this isn't going to just become concentrated in one or two validators. Um, but you know, if it is, it's, it's purely on the preference of the people who, um, have tokens. And so you kind of have to, um, concede that point if that's what, is that, if that's what they really want. (laughs) Yeah. One of the things I also find uh, really interesting about Tezos is just a strong community that you guys uh, seem to foster around the, the project. Yeah. I've noticed that, you know, even ahead of uh, discussion, uh, right, so I posted online asking folks what uh, they would like me to discuss with you and, you know, got a ton of response. And I just noticed people are very, seem to be very passionate about Tezos in general. Yeah. And obviously you had a huge ICO, right? Uh, you raised like $232 million. Well, I didn't raise that money. The Tezos Foundation did. Um, the Tezos Foundation, right. Yeah. I haven't earned a cent from this. Um, but, uh, but you know, I mean, yeah, there's there were 30,000 contributors uh, to the Tezos fundraiser in 2017. And um, it was a really widespread and it's a really like diverse group of people um, who did that. So one of the things I'm really curious about i see a lot of interesting very technical people in the space you know working on some cutting edge stuff oftentimes what they fail to do is build a strong community around that having a great tech solution is that's great but it's not enough you need to drive adoption and you need to build community how did you guys do that well the big i I think the big misunderstanding in the space is that this is um this is just you know, a, a technical solution that, um, you know, needs to exist inside a vacuum or some sort of, Yeah. I think this is ultimately a piece of coordination technology and coordination technology is only interesting when you have many, many people, um, who are, who are sitting at the table and, and offering contesting viewpoints. Um, that's how these things grow more robust and how they become designed better. I think, you know, I, I mean, listen, Arthur and I are the, the co-founders of this project, but, um, the whole reason that, um, Tezos ex- exists is because we saw, um, you know, quite a bit of, uh, uh, quite a, quite a bit of, um, oli- oli- technical oligarchies sort of start to emerge in the early days of other cryptocurrencies. And we thought that that was fundamentally not a way to inculcate, um, the best innovations. I don't think you can rely on the judgment of a group of core developers to, um, make the best decisions overall. And so, you know, Tezos is unique because I think it's one of the few um, cryptocurrencies that aims to basically obviate the the people who, um, uh, you know, uh, would normally be in charge of other cryptocurrencies, which is, you know, the, the core developers who are, you know, sitting in, and, and sort of dictating who gets a say in, in uh, which um, version is canonical um, of the software. And so that that empowers people, right? Like that that is a very sincere and a very legitimate way to um, limit uh, your influence on a, on a, a certain network and also empower people. And I think that um, people respond to respect. I think that people respond to having their voice acknowledged. Um, I, you know, I, I I come into a weird place in this because um, people obviously pay attention to things that I say related to Tezos because I, I you know, I do get that co-founder status and I, that's why I get yeah. news with nice people like yourself. Um, <laughs> but, but like, I'm not there um, in, in the community to like, uh, coddle anyone. I'm just a small voice in there. Um, and I'm not really determining anything. I, I, I have, um, like no tokens. I have like no teeth in this really. Um, but, but don't you have like tokens that are going to vest over time? Um, I could one day, but I, I don't at the moment. And, uh, <laughs> and so, um, you know, I, 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 you know, genuinely have nothing to do with the success of the network since its launch because I'm, I'm not really, a, a, you know, not really a part of it. Um, but I, what I do think um, the design allows for, which which makes um, people genuinely much more excited about Tezos than many other projects, is is that um, you know the 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 algorithm, um, the way it was first designed, gives them a tremendous amount of responsibility and a, tre- a tremendous amount of respect, and I think people respond to that. Right. A funny story, by the way, when I uh, posted, I think a couple of days ago about, you know, the questions, I accidentally made the mistake of calling you the CEO of Tezos. And and I got such a backlash, you know, Tezos has no CEO and we control our own faith and and so forth. And um, 
yeah, it was really interesting, which I, I guess very much relates to what you just mentioned. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's uh, it's it's very true. Like, you know, there are many articles written about Arthur and I from like, yeah, I guess a lot of people in like the Ethereum community and, and the Bitcoin community about how Arthur and I were very like low EQ um, for not like trying to trying to like, I don't know, do do the sort of, uh, I, I guess, BSE like, you know, Oh, Tezos is the best. Tezos is the best. I, I, my whole thing has always been like the the technology speaks for itself, and ultimately, um, it, it puts a lot of uh, it puts a lot of um, responsibility in the hands of the people who um, are part of the network. And for this to live or die, um, it needs to exist, you know, outside of outside of our personalities. Um, and I think it very much does. And the last like year and a half has really proven that that's the case. Mm. So what is your role in the network? Because obviously you provide the guidance and lead the way. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't I don't particularly think so. I mean, I'm no? okay. the, the Tezos network in a, you know, a new way. Um, I have a new company that um, wants to uh, create infrastructure that will allow for on-ramps and off-ramps to these networks in, um, in, in a, I guess, a more elegant way than, than how they exist today. I think the UX for a lot of um, blockchain-based assets um, are atrocious, and uh, and, and so I, I, I seek to remedy that. Um, and the way that I'm going to do that is by creating a video game. And um, the way that <laughs> this ties into one another is that I think um, the infrastructure and the designs that I have to come up with to um, make this video game use a blockchain passively to organize its economy um, will have very virtuous, um, very virtuous uh, technological uh, innovations that can be used in other use cases and applications in Tezos, but also Ethereum and other smart contract platforms. Got it. So other than that video game, which we can touch on in a second, you don't really have any special say in the governance of, of Tezos? I mean, I have no tokens, so that explicitly makes mean, <laughs> means no. <laughs> um, but, you know, I try my best to engage with the community if people ask me questions and, like, if they ask my opinion on things. Um, for, for the record, no one has asked me my opinion on any of the last two upgrades uh, to the Tezos network. So, um, Wow, you know, that's crazy. Yeah, I think it's great. I mean, I really encourage people to, like, take this on to themselves and, and, and you know, um, and, and hopefully they feel empowered um, by the rights that the, the, the network has baked into it. Um, but really, you know, I, I, I guess I, you know, I don't want to belabor this too much, but it really is the case that, you know, if you read the position paper, it's a good thing that, you know, I, I don't really have a vocal say like a, that's, that's explicitly what we're trying to guard against is, um, you know, relying on one or two people um, to set the tone for the network. And what do you say, regardless of your position, just in general, I'm curious, to people who are skeptical about decentralized organizations and the ability of the crowd to manage an entity or, or a company? Well, I, I think there's, um, I think a decentralized network is a lot different than a decentralized organization. Um, I might be a little stodgy in how I treat people, but like, you know, my, my, my current company is not, you know, a decentralized, uh, you know, wherewithal, like, I do think that managerial leadership is very important in a company. Um, however, I think that in a network that aspires to transmit value, um, there is no shortage of a need for multiple actors at the table. And, you know, generally having, um, uh, these things live and die by network effects, meaning um, the more actors that are at the table, the more robust and pervasive the network becomes. Um, and I think that that's the goal with a piece of open source software like Tezos that aspires to um, create systems of account over time and have persistence in that. Um, that's much different than if you're at a company that's trying to create a piece of software, um, having some sort of loosey-goosey like um, holacracy is kind of uh, a recipe for failure, in my opinion. So you draw the distinction between a company and a network. For a network, it does make sense to have decentralized government, and maybe it's even preferable, but for a company, it's a completely different story. Um, yeah, I, I think... Uh... I, you know, I think there's a very strong disconnect between, you know, corporate governance and um, and network governance in a um, a cryptocurrency, right? So yeah, that's the thing. I don't know. It's so early, right? That I feel like nobody really knows at this point. I mean, all the crypto networks are fairly new, other than Bitcoin, I guess. Yeah. Well, we'll see. I mean, I'm I'm happy insofar as the 
the thesis around um, some of the more contentious aspects of Tezos have um, played out the the way that I had hoped that they would. Um, like the network has been able to upgrade itself, um, you know, twice so far and working on a third time. Um, and, and that's like a remarkable achievement in its own right. So that at least goes to show that the mechanism that was at least first presented to the community does work. Um, and that's encouraging. Um, but I, I do think that you know, there are benefits to centralization in um, management of a piece of software. And I think that the, the uphill battle is finding a decentralized model that works, that is less um, abusive of, of people <laughs> than, uh, than, than something kind of loosey-goosey, um, the way we see in other open source projects. So how do partnerships like the one with Coinbase come about? If the network is decentralizing its governance? Well, I don't know what you mean by the like partnerships i mean coinbase um lists the tezos token and it also it has a, a part of its custody service but that was something that i i think coinbase did on its own volition i see so there's no coordination with uh, folks on the tezos side of things well i mean i think you have to basically clarify what you mean by the tezos side of things because there's like a network with um you know tens of thousands of peop- participants and token holders um and you know i'm sure some of them reached out to Coinbase and that's how Coinbase like knew that this would be a viable option for them as a, as a business. Um, but, you know, to, to the best of my knowledge, um, you know, Coinbase wanted to do this and, uh, and, and that was why they, you know, developed the, the part of their um, custody, uh, cu- custody group and also, um, and also listed the token and did all that, all that fun stuff. Yeah, and it seems like you had a pretty strong year, just in general, right? So yes, last month Coinbase introduced staking, and uh, I saw somewhere that it also drove the number of addresses of people who have more than uh, 0.1 Tezos token XTZ to above 100k addresses. Just in general, it seems like Tezos has been going quite a bit. Yeah, well, I mean, um, you know, I think it's a really good idea and a really good piece of software. And uh, uh, the the folks who've been attracted to the project are, in general, super serious and smart. Um, and I think, you know, people take notice of that and they want to know more about what's going on. And because Tezos is one of the few projects um, that has really made good on all of the um, ideas that it, you know, presented to people, um I think I think that basically just delivering in this space differentiates you pretty pretty strongly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, like you know, you, you ask about like the difference between different different uh, smart contract networks. I'm like, shit, you know, Tezos is one of the few that actually um, is proof of stake, right? And actually has a governance model that consistently works. Um, it has a really robust community that's extraordinarily diverse, not just in geography but also in expertise. Um, and yeah, I mean, that just creates a virtuous cycle. Like when you have a ton of people who are um, uh, super interested in working with the piece of software, um, you, you get good results. Um, and uh, I, I feel as though other projects, ha- because they don't allow their communities to have um, such an obvious, uh, straightforward voice in the network, um, they tend to alienate people who aren't just purely developers or purely technical. And I feel as though that's um, a big failing of this space, is to think that everyone has to like learn to write a smart contract in order to be a valid participant. I think that the governance mechanism in Tezos is a much better test of um, enthusiasm and uh, and I, I guess it's strength um, than any number of you know smart contracts to put in it right now. Um, the, at least the thesis um, or one of the um, more cultural um, uh, things that we hold true um, in Tezos is that you know not everyone needs to be able to write a smart contract. Um, you know, typically we want them to use them, but it's not a super necessary to be technical to participate in this ecosystem, um, and that's I think very empowering for people. Yeah, I think in general, again, it goes back to what we talked earlier. I think you take this pragmatic approach, which is not just about the technical specs, but it goes beyond that. Yeah, well, it's a piece of technology, um, and uh, and if you don't acknowledge that, you're you're going to wind up, uh, you know, talking a lot about um, wonky moon math, and maybe you'll you know engineer yourself to death, but you won't. Um, have, uh, you know, a fraction of the community that um, uh, Project Lake Tezos does. 
Yeah, I mean, when people buy a new iPhone, right, they don't necessarily know the specs. It just works, and it works smoothly. Oh, and the, the the sort of adage I've been giving, um, and I, you know, do do I, I guess conferences now is, um, I, I aspire for blockchains to have the same status as TCP/IP. Um, you know, I don't open yeah. my laptop and say like, I sure do hope this email is getting to um, you know, someone else. It just works, right? And uh, and basically, you know, the the governance mechanism in Tezos is meant to instantiate upgrades and innovations and tech, you know, technical choices um, that give that sort of efficiency as its end game. Um, it just happens to be the case that we're quite early in uh, the the cycle for um, these networks becoming um, super efficient and super robust in the same way that TCP/IP is, uh, where anyone can pretty much use it. Um, but uh, but I, you know, well, it'll get there. Like you have to have some faith in in people to problem solve. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I bet most people who use email don't even know what TCP IP is. Yeah. So what's next for Tezos? Like, what are you most excited about? What's what's on your old map? Yeah, I mean, um, I'm heads down working on uh, the game and, and we're getting towards the point where we can start to, you know, publicly talk about um, publicly talk about that. Um, so that's super exciting for me because we had to um, basically come up with original solutions for um, auctioning off these um, uh, cards and uh, giving the ability to rent these cards and also um, an original solution for custodying them uh, for people that, you know, doesn't ask for them to download MetaMask, for example. Um, and I think that's all well and good. So that's where my focus is. Oh, that's a big one. Yes, yes, it is. Um, Downloading MetaMask is such a pain. Well, I think it alienates like 99% of normal people. It's not really usable for the 99% of, yeah, yeah. not really adopted. I mean, I think that basically um, we're at capacity with people who are really enthusiastic about blockchains. Um, those people are all pretty much bought in and they're willing to download MetaMask to play a game. Um, I want to um, grow the... Uh, use of this software beyond um, just people who are very enthusiastic about its um, potential uh, implications on like the financial system or, you know, whatever, whatever gets you going, or whatever got you into this. Um, and so, uh, you know, my solution is mostly meant to be um, something where you don't know that you're using a blockchain. Like that's my goal. Um, and, uh, and that's the standard I'm holding myself to. So it's taken a little while for me to um, ideate about this and, and think through the user experience, but I'm, I'm pretty pleased with what we've come up with. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll be announcing some sort of alpha in the near future, uh, but I'll, I'll be slaughtered by my team if I, if I say dates now, because they'll have to work for that. Uh, so, Come on, give us the date. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, for, for Q1, um, but, you know, that, that's that's like always subject to change. Um, but, uh, so that's what I'm most excited about is, you know, what I'm doing selfishly. And then, um, you know, in tandem with that, obviously, uh, you know, there's a lot of participation in the Tezos governance model. Uh, there's an ongoing, you know, um, ongoing, uh, you know, basically pr pr effort for its third upgrade cycle, uh, which is called Carthage. Um, and people can vote on that um, and, uh, and, you know, see if they want to test it out and, and potentially use it as an upgrade. Um, I haven't been following that as much as I had been the first two upgrades, um, but I, there are many people in the Tezos community. If you merely search Carthage, you know, Tezos, you'll, you'll find lots of opinions and lots of resources to find out more. Um, and yeah, I mean, in tandem with that, I, I guess I've been super excited to see uh, some of the people who um, are starting to contribute to the, the you know, ecosystem. And um, I know a lot of folks are working on different upgrades and that's all fun and cool uh, to see. Right. So can you talk a bit more about the game? Uh, yeah, sure. I'd love to hear more. And uh, as I mentioned, like I posted on Twitter and a couple of uh, folks also, I think, uh, were very curious. To... Is, is that Coase when you say the game? Is that the, is that the one? Yeah. So, I mean, Coase is the name of the company. Um, and uh, basically, Coase exists to uh, introduce markets into digital economies. Um, I say this because there are many, uh, many sort of facets of... Um, many facets of the web where the advertising model for monetization has um, either eviscerated or severely distorted um, it, its, uh, it, its economies um, for different industries. Uh, I think online video games are one of the most bastardized um, because basically in the mid 2000s, you had to do the free to play model um, if you wanted to monetize a video game online. Um, and for collectible card games, this has been um, particularly taxing. 
in the sense that the free-to-play model uh, strongly discourages uh, um, exploration in these games. Uh, and so people play more conservative play patterns uh, for these collectible card games like Magic the Gathering, Hearthstone, whatever, um, than they historically would in their paper or analog formats. Um, because we can use a blockchain uh, to basically um, allow for the free trade of these assets with people in their peer group or with um, the marketplace that we'll set up, um, we allow for more experimentation than has ever been um, able to be programmed before. Um, and we're able to basically provide an alternative to the free-to-play model for collectible card games. Um, so I teamed up with uh, you know, three really talented uh, people who are really into Magic the Gathering um, to create this this original game that we call uh, Emergence. Um, so we're working towards uh, we're working towards releasing that. Um, and you know the idea there is that the marketplace and the ownership model um, are tied to the Tezos blockchain. Um, but basically, the game I think is funded in its own right. And uh, I think that's what has been missing from the blockchain plus gaming space is like an actually fun game um, that just happens to use a cryptocurrency or a blockchain based model to provide liquidity. I don't think people really care that much about ownership for the sake of ownership. If they did, they, you know, Facebook wouldn't be a multi-billion dollar company um, because, you know, clearly people don't care that much about owning their data. I think what people care about is um, basically optionality and being able to recreate the fun play patterns that existed in these analog versions of uh, collectible card games. The collectible part is really why you need a blockchain, right? It's because like the transfer and I guess the purchase of different non-fungible assets. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, you know, these things have to, well, people have to want to play them over and over again um, in order for them to really be an interesting collectible item. And that's where the, you know, the the game ties in. Um, But basically... Uh, we're using a blockchain to, uh, you know, allow people to own and trade uh, their their assets freely. Um, but we're also using it as a coordinating mechanism um, by using a, a token bonding curve, basically to auction off um, and set a, a price for um, the asset at the get go. Ah, interesting. So sounds like those two really unique things here. A is like what you just said about auctioning it, and B it's really. The secondary market, right? So let's say you have a game, but you don't use a blockchain. Trading these assets and selling them, my understanding is, and you know, I'm not a big gamer, but my understanding is it's, uh, it's quite difficult to do at the moment. And oftentimes it's not really even part of the game, right? So people try to look for all these markets to do that, even though it's not really the intent of the developer. Yeah, that's, I mean, I think that's a fair summation. Uh, there's obviously a lot of uh, stuff going on in different models. Um, but if you want to just paint a, paint a picture, it's um, basically the case that, you know, a game like Magic the Gathering or any collectible card game, Yu-Gi-Oh, Pokemon, whatever, um, all have two components to them. Um, there's like a battle sequence where you have cards that have different um, d- different powers and different abilities that can um, go head to head with each other. And that's, you know, one component, but then there's sort of a metagame or an economic game wherein you do only have like a finite number of cards that you can bring into these battles. And so strategizing about which ones you want to pick and choose um, requires the ability to kind of like trade and, and explore um, these things because they, they do shift over time and, and play patterns um, become differentiated as people pick up on what's what's a strength and what's a weakness of a card or, or um, a strategy of cards. Um, and so without the sort of freewheeling exploration that facilitates this metagame, uh, there's a richness that's lost to them. Um, and, and players in um, digitized versions of these games often complain about the fact that they don't have as much uh, ex- exploratory capability um, because of the way these markets are set up where they'll have like, you know, 70% spreads and they'll be able to grind things back to dust uh, to buy more cards, but it's at a very, very, um, I guess, predatory uh, rate. Which is why I think gaming is such an interesting vertical. Because it's a fully digitized economy. Yeah, um, and exactly. We talk a lot about how blockchains are going to change uh, finance, but like, hell, there's there's this whole, uh, this whole other world that exists that doesn't have uh, the same uh, ticky-tacky on-ramps and off-ramps, and why aren't we trying to innovate there first? Right, and, and the behavior already exists, right? Like so many people already purchase digital assets using various games. It's already there. Yeah, and what I like about it as well is there's a cultural tie-in um, wherein you know people who are into these games tend to have sort of a hacking mentality in the first place. Um, if you're constantly going into you know yeah. face-to-face battle, 
um, that does lend itself to a certain sort of um, aggression in your in your thinking. And my co-founder Zvi Moshowitz, um is is sort of hyper competitive, and and he could have he could be uh, he could be anyone he wants to be, right? But but he he just happens to have this extraordinarily um, amazing uh, adversarial mindset, and he's constantly thinking about um, ways that things can go horribly awry. And it's fun to watch because um, it reminds me a lot of um, it reminds me a lot of my husband when he's thinking through uh, engineering problems in the same vein. So um, it's familiar enough that you know I I, I, uh, I enjoy working with him, but it's also fun and new that he um, orients himself towards gaming rather than you know uh, Arthur. I guess he's been more passionate about Tezos for the last few years. Yeah, it's it's going to be fascinating to see how it's going to play out. My sense is gaming is probably going to be one of the first verticals where blockchain is really going to make a big difference in the coming years. Yeah, I hope so. I don't know who the winners are going to be, but uh, I think there's a huge opportunity there. Well, I mean, if you, you if you knew, I, I hope you'd be putting your VC uh, hat to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's the aim. For sure. Kind of shifting gears a bit towards the end of our conversation, just curious, taking a step back from Tezos and thinking about the market more broadly, curious, what's your view on Bitcoin? Are you long there? I mean, I like Bitcoin just fine. I think uh, I think it's it, it does what it says it's going to do. And that's, uh, that's a pretty strong differentiator in this space. Um, so it's, uh, no, it's a great piece of technology and it's been beaten up and, and you know, tried and true quite a bit. I mean, obviously, um, you know, I, I think Tezos has certain advantages over time, but, um, these networks, uh, obviously benefit a lot from the people who participate in them. And, and Bitcoin does have probably the strongest name brand of any, of any cryptocurrency. Um, and, 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 you know, you can't, you can't, uh, you can't neglect that. And I have a lot of respect for, yeah, I have a lot of respect for it. So um, it's a cool piece of tech. Um, you know, no one's perfect and nothing is perfect, but um, it, it's, it seems to be doing quite well. <laughs> yeah. And when you say it does what it's meant to do, you mean store of value? Like you're referring to the store of value narrative? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, that's, that's at least how I think of it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think most people do at this point. Yeah. Um, but it's cool to see, it's cool to see things like the Lightning Network, you know, pop up. And admittedly, I don't follow, um, I, I don't follow the space all that closely. I know that sounds kind of silly. Um, but, uh, but I really just try to focus on, um, helping people out within the Tezos ecosystem where I can and, uh, and thinking through my own way that I can contribute to it. Um, and I, I try not to poke my head up too much from that, but, um, my understanding is that, you know, Bitcoin has had some like cool innovations over the last few years and, and, um, with respect to like the lightning network and a few other things. Um, I also have seen like quite a bit of, uh, from like its own little weird civil wars. So, you know, there's, there's some parts of it that I think could be improved, but um, by and large, it's a pretty cool piece of technology. What about the blockchain space more broadly? Anything you're, other than Tezos, obviously, anything you're uh, excited about or looking forward to, say, in the next two, three, five years? Um, we talked about gaming as one vertical that sounds like you're uh, passionate about. Well, gaming, I think the, the go-to-market on that um, was really appealing for me. Um, I could get something out the door in, you know, a year and some change. I think most other cases require a bit more, you know, tender, loving care um, and a little bit more coordination and coming at a higher price point. Um, so that's why I liked gaming as, as something to focus on. But, uh, geez, um, I think there's a lot of cool research being done um, on, on things like, you know, ZK snarks and uh, and ways to preserve privacy. Um, I think that's cool and worth looking into. Um, I, not just for privacy, but also for compression. Um, so there's there's some cool projects coming out like uh, Coda, um, which is being built out of a team in mm-hmm. Francisco. That's also no camel. Um, I think there's a lot of interesting experimentation going on with the Cosmos ecosystem, which is in many ways sort of an orth- mm-hmm. orthogonal thesis to. Um, Tezos, Tezos talks a lot about, uh, the position paper talks a lot about, um, you know, basically imbuing, uh, innovations into the, the core protocol. Um, Cosmos is much more experimental at the, uh, at the hub stage and, and tries to have more of a thesis of, you know, a, a, a blockchain in every pod, a consortium in every garage, uh, to, to, um, riff on a famous saying from a U.S. president, um, 
and more more oriented towards like um, people having tokens for different purposes. Um, so that's interesting. That's that's worth watching and, and um, keeping uh, tabs on. Um, and then there's a lot of cool work being done with Ethereum for their like 2.0 push and and the um, economic and uh, technical models for that are worth seeing how they play out. So that's kind of like what I focus on if I focus on anything outside of the immediate, um, you know, Tezos ecosystem that um, is, you know, shifting and, and growing in its own way. Yeah. Do you follow the latest developments in the DeFi space? Um, well, I think it's a cool, I mean, basically, I think this stuff is awesome if it replicates traditional financial mechanisms um, and lowers the ticket price for that. I think that um, that's what makes this technology interesting is that it can lower the, the ticket price for um, for people to uh, use the sort of systems and mechanisms that um, institutions have benefited from for the last, you know, 50, 60 years. Um so watching that space emerge has been fun. Um, unfortunately, I think, you know, people grasped onto this being a cool idea. And now there's a ton of, uh, there's a ton of like, I don't know, collateralized die lending platform. It's just, I, I think, run amok a little bit. Um, so I'll wait till that cools down <laughs> to, to re-engage. Okay, that's fair. Last question. You're based in Europe now, right? I don't know. I float between places, but I'm basically like London, uh, New York, and uh, and I, I spend some time in the West Coast if, if I have to. Ah, so there's no one place. Where I hang my hat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm mostly based out of uh, based out of airports. Ah, okay. And I was about to ask you about the European ecosystem for blockchain versus the American one. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, um, you know, I have a pretty good sense of both, I think, at this point. Um well, there's a lot of, I, I've, for better or worse, you know, I've, I, I know a lot of, uh, I, I know a lot about it. <laughs> um, I think, I, I think that in Europe, it's a much different like work culture um, and a much different uh, structure for capital allocation. And so um, it's been fun to see um, different like venture capital um, funds uh, still continue to fund progress in the space in Europe, whereas I think in the US, they've kind of chilled a little bit. Hmm. How is that different? Different in what way? Um, yeah, I think I think basically the crypto space uh, came in fast and hard in the US. Um, and a lot of organizations that are based in the US, um, you know, haven't basically fulfilled their promise. Um, and so there's been a bit of a, a chill um, in the U.S. ecosystem, and I don't see the same chill when I go to Berlin, when I go to Paris, when I go to you know different meetups in London. Um, so I think there's still a lot of uh, I, I think there's talent obviously in both places, but I just think uh, you know culturally, if I'm doing a finger in the wind, uh, you know take it take it with a grain of salt. Um, there's a little bit more enthusiasm for this technology in Europe still, um, which took a while longer to get on board. And so I see a little bit more innovation coming out of projects in that space. Whereas um, in the U.S., I do feel like there's been a bit of a, a chill um, because there were a lot of projects based in the U.S. in like 2017, 2018, uh, when when uh, when there was a lot of money going into the space and a lot of those groups or entities didn't make good on their promises or haven't shipped anything. And uh, I think we're seeing a consequence of that in uh, like the, the venture capital uh, space, for example, for using that as a proxy um, for enthusiasm. Yeah. The biggest trend I've noticed is I think a lot of the original crypto funds or the crypto funds that have been set up in recent years have skewed more recently towards the venture model as a result of, you know, a lot of the, uh, uh, these projects not necessarily delivering on the on the promise or or not figuring out the token economics just yet. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm not an expert in that. I'm just more or less like giving my uh, giving my sense from from looking for funding for my current project, right? Um, and and that gives me a good sense of who's still really interested and who's not. And it's been easier for me to source talent, and it's been easier for me to source capital um, from European. Uh, entity is uh, at least in like the, my first my first passes at this uh, for my new company. The really interesting piece here is also it feels like the blockchain ecosystem in general is more global yeah. than traditional tech, which tends to be like very much concentrated in the few hubs that we all know. 
Yeah. And I, well, I think, you know, I think there's been a lot more inroads. Well, I, I just think in general, banking infrastructure, for example, in the UK, uh, lends itself more towards like, um, uh, like fintech plays and interesting fintech companies than the US banking system. So you see a lot more innovation in that front, or at least better ideas, I think, um, because there's more possibility. Um, but obviously, Brexit is going to throw a wrench in that. But, uh, but you know, by and large, if I'm just going to, you know, opine freely um, with my, my very limited insight, um, I, I would say that I am more enthusiastic about teams and, and projects coming out of Europe in the next like two or three years than I, I, I have been before. Cool. So Kathleen, great talking with you. Really appreciate again you coming on the show. Thanks for sharing your insights. Well, thank you for asking me about them. I, I um, you know, I'm very flattered. So thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode of The Blockchain VC and want to help bring more awareness to the space, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps get the word out.